0: Okay, well, I get to say this for the last time, please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Isaiah, and uh, let's, uh, let's uh, taxi down to uh, the runway for departure, and we're going to do our jet tour through Isaiah. Uh, many, many years ago, John MacArthur preached one whole message on the whole book of Revelation. He called it a jet tour through Revelation, so I am borrowing his title and uh, when I conclude a book that we've been going through, we'll try to finish it by doing the whole book in, in one message to get the flyover, and we'll call it the Jet Tour. So um, if you're in Isaiah, uh, those of you at home, you can pull out your notes. Those of you that have just gotten here, or maybe you didn't get one on the way, and there are some notes in the back. There's actually two, uh, two uh, documents there. Um, one of them is a really cool chart that you're going to want to grab and, and stick in your Bible for reference. Many of you have asked me about this chart and God graced us with a new color copier here at the church this last year so we're able to actually make this chart look nice by printing it in color. So uh let me pull up the PowerPoint and we will uh we will get on the way here. Okay, so what is the book of Isaiah about? Um I I was going to do this. Um what We we can't do this all day, but I'd just love to hear from a few of you. What are your takeaways from Isaiah? What have you gained? And I know probably a lot of it's blurry and a lot of it's hard to remember. But what are you going to take away? Is there there something that stuck with you? I'd love to just hear from a couple of you about what you gained from our time in Isaiah. This is where you find out how effective you've been, right, David? (laughs) Don't let me down. Anything stand out from Isaiah? Yes, very good. God's glory on display. All right. Well, thank you. Okay, you make me feel better. I was I was worried there for a minute. So, okay. So let's let's uh, jump in here. And remember, um, and th- this this uh, David will get into this in his class also. But the first thing we have to do with a book like I- of Isaiah is is get our bearing. And uh, the chart that you see on the screen, you've seen this many many times. Uh, this is what's called the Ark of biblical history. And we recognize that the Bible starts with the patriarch period, right, with, uh, or excuse me, with creation, with uh, creation of heavens and the earth and Adam and Eve. And then it moves into the patriarch period at the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, on into uh, the exodus with Moses and the Israelites and, and leaving Egypt and, and going into the wilderness to receive God's law, the, the conquest under Joshua where uh, God had promised in the covenant to give them a land, and now they were to go in and take the land. And so we remember that with Jericho and stories like that. And then, uh, as has been the case since the patriarch period, but really comes to a climax in the judges' era, we see the, the people just lacking direction, wandering in disobedience. And so God raised up judges in those days, people like Samson, or uh, Samson and Samuel and Gideon uh who led the people. And that leads us into the kingdom era. You'll remember that the people under uh, Samuel's ministry demanded a king, and so God gave in to that request, even though he uh assured them they didn't need a human king if, if he were to be their king. And uh, so Saul and, and David and Solomon. And that 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 gets us into the era of Isaiah, because when as we come to Isaiah, what we see is uh, there are kings of Israel, but something happened shortly after Solomon's reign. You remember after Solomon uh, died and one of his sons took over and there was a, a civil war uh, that had broken out. And so now you have Israel divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And so you have kings of Israel ruling in the north and kings of Judah ruling in the south. And both of those kingdoms are not kingdoms of, of people and leaders that are faithful. And so that's when God begins to dispatch his prophets. And so this, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and and, and all of those prophets, that's the era that the, um, the prophets begin. So Isaiah is written. Do you remember uh, Isaiah was written to people in the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom? Do you remember? The southern kingdom. How do we know that? Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Hey, it's been a long time since we've been there. Chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning, concerning Judah. That's the southern kingdom. And the capital city is what? Jerusalem, right? Concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And those are the four What's it say? Kings of Israel. See, you've got a lot of historic context just in the first verse. So you read the first verse and you go, wait a minute, okay, we're talking about southern kingdom. We know when it happens because Isaiah names the actual kings that were in power during his ministry. Uh, And if you've forgotten the capital city, it tells you there it's Jerusalem. So we get a lot of context right there. but, But that just gives us a little bit of bearing. And this is a good thing to do as you read through your Bible this year and you come to a new section like the prophets or a new historical section or maybe uh you know a book like Job or the Proverbs and you go who's writing and when is when is this going on and and uh, just remember this chart and even your study bible will help you to um remember a little bit of the context the timing what's going on who's he writing to and things like that so you're not lost as you jump into the book now th- this is really cool this is worth the price of admission today And you have a a color copy, hopefully, in your hand here. I don't know. I I spent months trying to track down who produced this chart. I have no idea who it is. And uh, so um, if you find out who it is, let me know, and I will happily give them credit for it. But uh, this is a wonderful little chart that uh, outlines the time of the kings. So you can see on the left-hand side there at the top, you see Solomon in the blue there. It kind of looks like a blue arrow. And then uh, you see the kingdom divide under Jeroboam in the north and Rehoboam in the south. And what's neat is, if you look at the little key there down in the lower right-hand corner, it, it gives you, um, each one of those colors represents uh, important information. So, for example, you have the, um, uh, the, the kings of Assyria all the way up in the red at the top there. And then you have the kings of Damascus below that. Um, in the yellow, big yellow stripe, those are the kings of, of uh, Israel, the northern kingdom. The green strip there are the kings of the southern kingdom or Judah. And then along the way, right in the middle, you see um, what look like little flags, little little blue and white flags, and some of them have blue and yellow and blue or green. Those are the prophets, and some of them, like you're looking there at, at Oded, and you're going, "Who's that? I've never heard of him." Well, well, he he was a prophet. The the historical books mention him. We we don't have a book that he wrote like Isaiah or Jeremiah, but uh, so those are all the ministries of the prophets. You see Elijah and Elisha, and so that the, the prophets were God's agents. Okay, remember the kings were supposed to be those that represented God to the people and led the people, and when the kings failed. God brought in the prophets to bring instruction and correction. So you'll see all throughout the, the kingdom era, right, the, the kings of Israel there and the kings of Judah, there are prophets that are ministering to the people, calling them back to God, uh, calling for repentance, reminding him of his promises. And Anyway, you get the idea there. If, if we zoom in on the section that we're particularly interested in, we see Isaiah right there in the lower right-hand corner and and you'll notice just what chapter 1, verse 1 says, Isaiah ministers doing the, during the time of four kings, right? Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And we can also see, and we, we read about these uh, men, some of these men in the book of Isaiah as well, that uh, there are kings still existing in the northern kingdom. And then what happens uh, about mid-range in Isaiah's ministry, what happens to the northern kingdom? Do you remember? Yeah, the, the the Assyrian captivity, right? So the Northern Kingdom of Israel is taken into captivity. Now, uh, I, I I should have put it in here, and I didn't. Do you remember when we come to Isaiah, Judah is this little teeny tiny dot, and surrounding the nation of Judah is what superpower nation, Assyria. Now let me put this in perspective, okay? Let's say we went all the way out west past new mexico like to the to the border the western border of new mexico okay and then we went north from texas all the way up to the northern border of oklahoma and then to the east we went all the way over to the the eastern border of louisiana and to the south we went all the way down to the border of mexico okay that's the assyrian empire in isaiah's day do you know what judah is dallas fort worth You got it? So, you picture that? Louisiana, New Mexico, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Mexico. That's the Assyrian Empire. And you're living in the DFW area. And you're surrounded from all those states around you by this superpower that's looking at your little metroplex going, that's the one place we haven't conquered yet. Now, how would you sleep at night? right? Would would you, let me ask you this, would you be tempted if, if your God assured you, don't worry, don't worry about that threat. Yes, I know every other nation in the known region has been taken over by Assyria. I know that. But God says, do not worry if you will trust me and if you will obey me. Remember that covenant I made? You're safe. Just trust me. Would you find it hard to believe him if you had that superpower surrounding you and they were drooling to come in and take your land too? Well, that's what's going on in the time of Isaiah. They are, they are seeing this threat and they are going, maybe we need a little bit of insurance. So they, they make some treaties with other countries. At one point they're even negotiating with Assyria. And, and, and rather than trust the God of Scripture they're saying, well, maybe if we just set up some altars on some of the high places and we'll, we'll offer sacrifices to the Assyrian gods just in case, just in case our God might be sleeping or, or or maybe maybe Assyria is too powerful for him, we'll just worship some other gods too. After all, the more the merrier, right? And that's what's going on. And that's why Isaiah is calling them back over and over and over to repentance, okay? So the book of Isaiah, what is it? It's a record of the prophet Isaiah's ministry to Judah, the southern kingdom, warning them of future judgment if they do not repent and promising them a future hope and kingdom that will come when the servant is revealed. That's the book in a nutshell. What's unique is that during Isaiah's ministry, he will witness the northern kingdom captured and taken into the cap, in captivity by the Assyrians. You can read the historic Account of that happening in Second Kings seventeen, and the thwarted attempt by them under Sennacherib to capture Jerusalem in the Southern Kingdom. That, that's that's one of the um, man. It, it it reads like a good novel even. That that's that part in the book where you know Sennacherib is is at the border, right? Remember, he's calling to the Israelites on the wall saying, don't trust Hezekiah. Hezekiah doesn't know what he's doing. Hezekiah is no match for us. You know, make a covenant now. Make a treaty now with us and give in now and we will spare your life. You remember that? And that's when Isaiah goes and he pleads with God and turns to him and God answers in a dramatic way of of overthrowing Sennacherib and sending him back to Assyria where afterward he is shortly killed by his own sons. And Isaiah foretold of the coming Babylonian captivity that Isaiah actually told us that Judah would eventually give in and they would be captured by the Babylonians. So it's just some Assyrian rulers. I put this here because uh, this is um, information you need to remember for the future. Uh, The Assyrian rulers that are happening, that, that are ruling during the time of Isaiah... As well as the kings of Judah, we have them listed right there in chapter One, verse one. I added Manasseh uh, simply because uh, historically he is likely the one that ended isaiah 's life and ministry now, we don 't know that for sure it's it's a it 's a bit of a tradition, uh, but the tradition has some uh, credibility to it so anyway so that 's what we're thinking now um, here th- this is the thing in fact i uh I've kept this, a photocopy of this in my Bible for the last two years because when I read Isaiah, I want to remember the outline. And uh, so here it is one more time. If you want an outline of the book of Isaiah, there's all sorts of ways we can outline it, but this is helpful to remember. Uh, So kind of the first half of the book is largely about condemnation of Judah and the surrounding nations. There's a, a historic section right in the middle regarding Hezekiah and Sennacherib and then his illness and his recovery. And then the second half of the book is largely about uh, the comfort and blessing and salvation that is to come. Now, I say that. Now, if you've read the book, what do you notice about that outline? It's wrong. <laughs> it's wrong. You say, why is it wrong? Because the first part of the book, chapter 1 to 35, is not just about condemnation. It's about God. It's about His greatness. It's about deliverance. It's about hope. It's about encouragement. It's about God's going to keep a remnant and there's restoration. It's, it's just those are minor themes, but they're there. And likewise, the second half of the book is about comfort and salvation and blessing and restoration and new heavens and new earth. Yes, but it's also got plenty of condemnation in it. Plenty of calls to repentance. So, and this is what you got to see. Prophets are not these, they're not these linear books that have this logical argument that builds. And you would see that more in like a, a Colossians or Ephesians or a Romans where Paul is writing and generally he has a direction or in the logic. Prophets are not like that. You're supposed to read the prophets and go, I have no clue where he is. Because prophets are like scriptural carousels. They they go around and around and around. And do you remember when you were a kid? Long, long time ago. Some of you may, may have done this with your grandkids lately. And, and they're on the little carousel at the amusement park, or maybe you go to the park and you put them on a, one of those little uh, deals there. And, and if you're on a carousel and you're looking out, right? And there's a big oak tree, and you go around, and oh, there's the oak tree. And then you go around again, what do you see? There's the oak tree again, right? You go around again, you say, oh, there's the oak tree. Oh, there's the oak tree. That's what the prophets are like. You're gonna, you're gonna read this, and you're gonna go, you're gonna see condemnation, condemnation, condemnation condemnation you're going to go around around around, and you're going to see that condemnation all throughout the book but you're also going to see other things you're going to see salvation you're going to see god's mercy you're going to see god's faithfulness to his remnant and and that's what a a prophetic book is like You're, you're going to see these themes over and over and over again it's a little bit dizzying but it's by design so so don't don't get frustrated by that just recognize that's how a prophetic book works and 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 uh Raise your hand if you're a parent, okay? How many times did you have to tell your kids something before they, they actually did it? First time? Two times? Do I hear three? Multiple times, okay? Now, that that is the wisdom of the prophets because God's people didn't get it the first time. So the prophet does what? He repeats himself. And that's how we learn, isn't it? And so, again, don't get frustrated with the prophets. Just remember, you're going to see those themes over and over and over again because we're a stubborn people too, and we need the encouragement of the same reminders. In fact, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the seven themes of Isaiah today. And uh, and you're going to see, uh, we're, we're only going to look at one chapter for each one of these, but what you're going to see is the book is full. Full of these same themes. You're on the carousel and you see the tree and then you see the, the mini mart and then you see the... and you just go around and around and around and you see those same themes over and over and over as you read through the book. Okay? So who's Isaiah? His name means... And this is on your notes there. Get out your pens. Yahweh is salvation. Isn't that appropriate? God, even in his providence, had the name of the prophet as a exclamation point to one of the themes of the book. That there is salvation only in God. We we read it, right? There's no other Savior. There's no other God. And Isaiah's name reminded that. He was married and had two sons. Do you remember his sons' names? We'll take the English translations and not just the Hebrew. You you get advanced, advanced points for the Hebrew names, so... Okay, not, not Isaiah's son, okay? That is, that is one of the, the sons that's mentioned, Emmanuel. But Isaiah actually had two sons that pointed to different parts of his ministry. One of them was named the remnant shall return, okay? And the other one was named maher, swift is the booty, quick is the prey, right? Emphasizing what? The captivity, yeah. Okay. And like Hosea, like other prophets, God got in the kitchen of his spokesmen known as prophets and said, you're going to name your kids these names. Remember Lo-Ami, not my people, right, In, in Hosea's ministry? So even the names of Isaiah's children emphasize different parts of God's message. Uh, he was likely martyred by being sawed in half by King Manasseh, and we get a reference, if that, if that's true, if that's actually what happened to him, we likely get a reference to that in the book of, I, of Hebrews in chapter 11 about faithful men, one unnamed person who was sawed in two. Okay? What's unique about the book of Isaiah? It's the third longest book in the Old Testament. Now, now hang on hang on (laughs) Um, we'll come back to that in a minute it's quoted more than any other book in the New Testament 65 times it's mentioned by name over 20 times Isaiah himself the name Isaiah is mentioned by name over 20 times in the New Testament and the book of Isaiah contains the most references most prophetic references about the Messiah we've looked at all those okay now now you ready for the daily double here's the daily double what is the longest book in the Old Testament? It's a trick question. If you count the chapters, it's the Psalms with 150. If you count the verses, it's the Psalms with 25, 27. If you count the number of words, it's Jeremiah. Okay, so that's the daily double. That, that's, that's the bonus question here. And of course, um, and David will appreciate this, that um, Hebrew is a lot more efficient Than English, and you'll remember most of the Old Testament books were written in an ancient language called Hebrew, and Hebrew is more efficient. You say, "What do you mean by that?" Um, In English, if I say uh, "my daughter," that's two words, right? In English, in Hebrew, it's one word because the, the pronoun gets stuck on the beginning of, of the word. So it's actually one word. So so we're counting Hebrew words here, not English words. We counted English words, it would be a lot more words. Okay, so 22,285 words. Look at this, I got another chart for you. Look at this, look at this. Um, so who's the winner? If we count the number of chapters, the Psalms, right? The Psalms have the most chapters in the Old Testament, and actually of any book in the Bible. If we count the number of verses... The Psalms, right? 2,527 verses. Look at this, though. What's second place if we count the number of verses? Genesis is the longest, the second longest book by, by verse count there, okay? And then uh, uh, Jeremiah, and then, uh, let's see, Isaiah, and then Ezekiel, right? So, so, so Isaiah's lagging behind there. If we count the number of words, as I said, there Jeremiah wins with twenty-two thousand two hundred eighty-five. The Psalms, look at that. The Psalms are way behind, under nineteen thousand six hundred sixty-two. Uh, Genesis twenty thousand seven hundred twenty-two, and there is Isaiah there at seventeen thousand one hundred ninety-seven. So it takes fifth place. It's actually the fifth longest book in the Old Testament if we're counting the words there. So, okay, that's for free you got it hopefully when you're you're playing bible quiz with your friends and you and you and they say what's the longest book in the old testament and everybody shouts out psalms you'll go actually for counting the hebrew words anyway okay so okay so why do we need to study isaiah these were our goals at the beginning of our study look at this we tend to minimize the seriousness of idolatry we are prone to wander as the israelites did we need to, be, to better understand God's plan of salvation unfolded in history. We need the confidence of fulfilled prophecy. We get to see the Messiah foretold. And we recognize the common, uh, the, the common disease of fallen yet redeemed people, that our God is just too small, isn't he? And Isaiah is designed to help us to see our God for who he is. So let's look at those seven themes, okay? Okay and uh this will be our jet tour theme number 1 religious yet rebellious we we see this right out of the gate if you're still in chapter 1 look back there isaiah chapter 1 and this sets up this sets up the whole purpose of the book here um as we parachute into isaiah what do we see um Verse 4, chapter 1 verse 4, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. And right out of thy gate, Isaiah just, just slams the nation and says, You guys are wicked. And we go, What happened? Look at this, verses 5 and following, we see that the the land is destruction and desolate, right? He says, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your your rebellion? Your whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint from the sole of your foot, even to the head. There's nothing sound, bruises, welts, raw wounds. Verse 7, your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields are strangers are devouring them in your presence. And so we we come and we go, what happened? God God is condemning his people and their land is, is destroyed. Well, as we get introduced to the book, we read something of the problem. Look at verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? says the lord i have had enough of burnt offerings of rams the fat of fed cattle i take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats when you come to appear before me who requires of you this trampling of my courts so bring your worthless offerings no longer incense is an abomination to me new moon and sabbath the calling of assemblies i cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are covered with blood. And as we're reading that, we ought to grieve. These are God's people. This is the nation that he called out for himself. And their land is destroyed. And God says, I don't want to listen to you. I don't want your sacrifices. In fact, when you come in your holidays, your religious holidays, I am offended by them. And we go, Why? And the answer is... They are hypocrites. And all throughout this book, we have seen that while they are professing God with their lips, their hearts are far from him. What are some of the Now, think back to our study. What are some of the things that, that the Israelites in Judah have been doing that are sinful and wrong while they're worshiping the Lord? Do You remember some of those things? Yeah, they have the high places, right? They've set up altars to foreign deities all over the land. Okay, what else? Yeah. They're making alliances with other nations when God said not to. Good. What else? Yeah, they're neglecting the poor. They're neglecting the widows. Remember, Isaiah would turn his attention and say, you know, the leaders even are corrupt. Because they're ignoring the poor. They're ignoring the destitute. They're not taking care of the widow. They're, they're not doing what James said is true and undefiled religion. Okay, what else are they doing? What's that? They're fasting as a joke, right? Because they, you know, they're living in sin and then they're doing religious things like fasting. Okay, what else? Do you remember on the Bible Project video? Uh, you kids will remember this where they're, they're, uh, they're buying something at the store and, and the, the store owner pushes down the scale so that he's charging his customer more for what he's selling them. Do you remember that? So there, there's corruption all over the place in terms of buying and selling. And, and uh, what else? What are the leaders doing? They're supposed to be leading the people. What are they doing? They're taking bribes. They're siding with the enemy. They're turning away from the Lord. They're supposed to be representing God to the people, right? And they're not. And, and you know, what a good reminder as as we conclude our study today of what God thinks about it when we profess Him with our mouth, but in our hearts we're far from Him. When we come to church and we sing and we hang out, we put on our little religious mask and then we go the rest of the week and we're distracted by the world, we're living in sin, we're living for ourselves, we're neglecting loving neighbor. We we should shudder to hear God say to his people, even when you pray, I don't listen, if your heart is like that, if you're hypocritical. So I, I, think this is, I think this is a good word for us. To be religious and yet rebellious is an offense to God. And, and we've seen, well, look at, the, look at the end of the verse here. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. God desires a faith that isn't just a profession, but is lived out in action. Not perfectly, right? We're not going to do this perfectly, but sincerely, uh, authentically, progressively. That's what really walking with God looks like. And what a great time at the beginning of a new year to say, this is how I want to live. I'm not going to play a game. I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm not going to just... This isn't make-believe, right? We don't come here and, and we all pretend like our lives are great. No, our lives are messy and difficult and, and painful. And, and in the, the the real honesty of what it means to walk with God, we strive to live out our faith in every action, in every word, in every pursuit. The, the, the New Testament goes like this. Whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do what? Do all the glory of God. Jesus has called to be Lord over every area of our life. And we need to remember that um, hypocrisy and playing religious games is offensive to God. And it brought, it brought one of the most destructive moments historically of judgment on God's people in the, in the captivity. Okay so that's a good reminder. Second theme. With that, what will happen? What will happen if they refuse if they refuse to repent? Well, let's let's look over at chapter 34. So I gave I've given you several texts for each of these themes, but let's look at chapter 34. If if they refuse to repent, God's own people, and you'll remember that as God looks at Assyria and Babylon and Damascus and some of the other uh, nations and cities that were nearby, he pronounces a similar judgment. God's not just calling out his people. He's calling out all people to trust and obey him lest judgment comes. L- listen to this, chapter 34, verse 1. "'Draw near, O nations, to hear, "'and listen, O peoples, "'let the earth and all it contains hear "'and the world and all that springs from it. "'For the Lord's indignation is against,' "'here it is, "'all nations.'" And his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So that their slain will be thrown out. And their corpses will give off their stench. And the mountains will be drenched with their blood. And all the host of heaven will wear away. And the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. And all their hosts will also wither away. As a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. Why? For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom, upon the people whom I have devoted for destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat and the blood of lambs and goats. And he goes on to describe in graphic detail what the coming judgment of the Lord will be like. We see this at the beginning of the book we see it at the end of the book that there is coming a day God himself has appointed a day of rendering a day of judgment and that day is coming we we see it we see glimpses of it in the historic moments in the book of Isaiah where God actually brought judgment on people but those things foreshadow a much greater judgment that's coming if we do not trust God and lean on His servant as the book is going to plead for us to do. There is a judgment coming, not just on us, but on all people. And we walk away, we, we call it the kindness and severity of God, right? That, that you do not mess around with the one who calls himself the beginning and the end. We do not play hypocritical games with the king of kings and lord of lords. We do not think we can wear a mask that gives lip service to God and in the end the judge is going to let us off in some way. And this book reminds us of what our sin really deserves and what will actually happen to any person because of their sin apart from the intervention of a Savior. Turn to Isaiah when you feel like you are not convicted about the guilt of your sin as you should. And it will help you. It will remind you. And we need sobering moments of what our sins deserve. To help us to bring clarity to priorities and to lean more wholly and fully on our savior And isaiah helps us to do that. It's it it is a pg-13 book in terms of the graphic nature Of what this coming day of wrath and judgment will be like But thankfully isaiah doesn't leave us there. He talks about a redeemer as well and uh there are so many good. Which one do you pick, right? What's your What's your favorite text regarding the servant, the Messiah, the branch, the Redeemer, the child, Emmanuel? He's called all sorts of different. What, what's your favorite text in Isaiah? It's hard to argue with fifty-three, isn't it? It's hard to argue with fifty-three, but there are some really good ones, really, really good ones. Let's Let's turn to fifty-three because uh, arguably this This is the pinnacle, right? Chapter 53, verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. And yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted but he was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the chastening of our well-being fell on him and by his scourgings we are healed now remember this doesn't start here we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with uh, or just, just just a week ago that, that that this promise of a redeemer to come and take the wrong in the world and fix it, goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? The seed of the woman that will come and crush the head of the serpent. And all throughout the Old Testament, the patriarchs and the judges and the exes, we see these pictures, these little hints about, about this redeemer, this servant, this one who will come and restore all things. And Isaiah, did you have you notice in Isaiah, Isaiah does more to develop this probably than any other book in the Old Testament. We get it hinted way, way back early in the book in chapter 6, verse 13, when um, Isaiah says there's the tree, right? Remember the tree? And the tree is going to be cut down, but the holy seed is the stump that remains. And out of that stump, God will grow a sapling who will become the servant, who will become the Messiah. He's called the branch. We see it in chapter 7, the the sign given to Ahaz that the virgin will be with child and he will grow up in poverty, though he's the redeemer, right? Right? He will be the one, chapter 8, verse 8, who will restore the land. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. He's described in chapter 9, right? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And as the momentum gains, we understand that he's called the servant, right? And the servant is none other than Israel. Remember Israel's the servant in the first part of the book. And yet the servant as we as Isaiah brings indictment on the nation of Israel who was supposed to be the light to the gentiles and who was supposed to reflect the hope to the world that the servant Israel is blind and deaf and dumb and pathetic and living in sin. So what does God do? He raises up one from among the people Who's in, in the, the patron, in the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and Jesse and David. And he comes, the one. So in the, in the whole of Israel, that's the servant, the book of uh, Isaiah narrows it down so that the spotlight is just on one individual who comes, as we read in Isaiah 53 here, to save his people from their sins by sacrificing himself. And we get this wonderful picture of the substitutionary work of the Redeemer. There's so many chapters here. I I hope that's been one of your favorite parts, that there is a Redeemer. Our sins deserve judgment. We, We are distracted. We are hypocrites. We are pathetic. We struggle. We are weak. But we have a great Redeemer who has come. And if we will put our faith in Him, He will make us His own. And he will forgive and he will restore. And there is a hope that we will not come under judgment. But as the New Testament says, we've passed from death unto life. And Isaiah has just put the spotlight on the work of that Messiah like no other book in the Old Testament. And so I hope you'll go back to chapter 42 and 43 and 49 and 53 and 59 and 61 and just soak that up when you're discouraged and when you're feeling guilty and when you're weak and you can read those and go, yes, there's hope because God has sent the servant. That's theme number three. Look at theme number four. Of course, this carries over from the Redeemer who brings redemption and, and so many chapters we could go to. But just the whole first half of the second part of Isaiah, starting in chapter 40, verse one, comfort, oh, comfort, my people, says your God, speak kindly to Jerusalem and Call out to her that her warfare has ended and her iniquity has been removed. How has that happened? How is the iniquity removed? Why is there hope? Verse 9, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up and do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, hear is your god and behold the lord god will come with might with his arm ruling for him behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him here's a picture and like a shepherd he will tend his flock and in his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom that's what our God does. That's what our Redeemer does. He comes and He rescues us. And we say, my guilt is too great. My situation too bad. The outlook, my circumstances are hopeless. God says, oh yeah? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand or, or calculated the span of the, of the heavens by the span of the hand? Who has calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance, the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as His Counselor has informed Him? Whom did He consult? And who gave Him understanding? And who taught Him in the path of justice and taught Him knowledge and informed Him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. This one can help us, can he? The one that literally hung the stars, the one that literally calculated the length of the heavens, the one who comes and creates and sustains all things, he can take the mountains and put them in a pair of scales if he wants to. Well, how about idols, right? Verse 19, the idol, a craftsman cast it, a gold smate plates it with gold a silversmith fashions chains of gold and then he who is too impoverished impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot to prepare an idol that will not totter is that going to help us we have modern isles you understand that right it doesn't i know probably most of you don't have assyrian deities on the mantle in your living room that's probably true But Americans have idols just like every nation have idols. We have idols of worldliness. We have idols of success. We have idols of health. We have idols of our money. We have idols of an ideal lifestyle. We have ideals of what contentment looks like. We have ideals of a a, a pain-free, worry-free life. And we bow down and we worship those things and they utterly fail us. Because they are not worthy of our worship. They are not worthy of our allegiance. So when your God is too small and you find yourself caught up in the things of the world that are promising the world and capturing your heart, go back to Isaiah. Read chapter 40. Read 43. Read 45. Read 52. Read these wonderful texts about who our God is. And let him draw your heart back to allegiance and love and worship. There's hope as we turn to that Redeemer. We also see, related to that, there's a remnant, right? We we read that first chapter and we go, what's going to happen? The land's desolate. God is offended by all their religious services. Their, their heart is far from God. God is threatening judgment. Good night. He just, he just took out the northern kingdom. You know, ICBM from heaven. Here comes Assyria. And we go, if God would do that to his own people. It's interesting. God has always said from the very earliest days that there would be a remnant. That the covenant he made with his people, that God would be faithful to that covenant. If he's going to be faithful to that covenant, that means there has to be a remnant. Why does there have to be a remnant? Because if there's no remnant, there's no Messiah. If there's no Messiah, there's no redemption. If there's no redemption, there's no hope for the world. I'm on David's soapbox a little bit here, but it's one story, right? It all connects together. Look at this, just as one sampling of how the Bible reminds us that as bleak and as dark and as hopeless as it looks, God has always kept a remnant of faithful people. Look at chapter 10, verse 20. Chapter 10, verse 20, just of of many places we could go, but just look at this. God has just announced that Assyria is going to be his instrument of judgment. You say, what is he going to do? He's going to annihilate his own people. And we say, well, is the covenant broken then? Has God walked off the stage and said, I've tried the last time and you guys just don't get it? I'm I'm, I'm going to go do something else? No. God tells us in chapter 10, verse 20, Now in that day the remnant of Israel and those of the house of jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them meaning uh the uh the assyrians what but instead what what's going to happen they will truly rely on the lord the holy one of israel a remnant will return remember that's the name of his first son a remnant will return the remnant of jacob to the mighty god for though Your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea. Only a remnant within them will return. But there will be a remnant, right? That's the hope. God has not utterly destroyed the plan. Just like in Noah's day where God literally annihilates humanity. But what does he do? He keeps a remnant. He he keeps a family that will continue the line and will be eventually the family of the Messiah. And that remnant reminds us that there will be a restoration. Turn all the way to the end of the book. We've looked at these verses recently, but let's just look at them again briefly. That there will be a restoration. Specifically, there will be a restoration for the nation of Israel, but there will be a restoration of all things that everybody can know who would trust in the servant, who would trust in The Messiah. One of the wonderful things about the book of Isaiah is we see again and again and again that the hope being offered is not just the hope for sinful Israel. The hope being offered is a hope for sinful humanity. And sinful humanity needs a Savior. But look at this. We're we're reminded in uh, 66. uh, We looked at this last time, right? 65 and 66. Look at uh, chapter 65. Verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. And I also will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people there will no longer be heard the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will be there an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. For the youth will die at the age of one hundred, and one who does not reach the age of a 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and in another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. And we look at this and we say, Oh, what a world. The vision of Isaiah is a day of restored Israel restored Jerusalem and people from every tribe and tongue and nation flocked to the nation to see what the hand of the Lord has done in redeeming his people. Can you imagine that? When that day comes, when all eyes are on the work of God and and, of course, that's that's on earth. That's a, a temporary situation that turns into what Isaiah calls the new heavens and the new earth for all who would believe. But th- th- how many times have we seen an Isaiah, guys? When we have, we have stumbled into church, into this room on Sunday morning, discouraged and despairing because of what happened in an election or what happened on the news or what happened in a family or what happened in a situation, we come in here just overwhelmed with the, the brokenness of the world. And Isaiah has said, hang on, because there's a day coming when God will restore all things and redeem all things That the darkness of the world today is not the end. That there is a bright light of hope in the restoration that is coming. And so we don't lose heart at our Fox News app, do we? We don't lose heart when someone else dies or someone else gets sick or when finances uh, go down the drain. We, we, We don't lose heart because this day is coming. This day is coming and so we remember. And seventh, we need to remember that all of these things that Isaiah has emphasized are there to remind us of our remarkable God. He is awesome and dangerous in his judgments. He is overwhelmingly kind in his mercy and his patience and his grace. And we have seen those two Character attributes of God over and over again. Just listen to Isaiah 43. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse 4. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you. Verse 5, do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. And he goes on to describe everyone who was called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Listen to this. I am God, even from eternity, I am he. There is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it. And then he concludes with this. It is I, even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. This is our God, awesome and severe and dangerous in his judgment and his holiness overwhelming in His mercy and grace and patience and redemption. And He calls us to trust Him. And that leaves us with the plea of Isaiah in chapter 45. Listen to this. I am the Lord and there is no one else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness... Declaring things that are upright, gather yourselves and come. Listen to this. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge, who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who they cannot serve. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old, who has long since declared it? Is it not I? the Lord, and there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is no one except me. Here's the plea, verse 22, listen. Turn to me and be saved. Israel, no, no, no. Turn to, be sa- turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth and I w- it will not turn back. Why? That to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him. All who were angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. So Isaiah pleads with the world and says, will you come To the only God, to the only Savior, to the only hope that you have. You know, um, there are a lot of people right here in Granbury who are looking to 2021 as their hope. You know why? Because it doesn't say 2020 anymore. And you know what they're going to find? Maybe the pandemic's a little different, but they're going to find the same things that look glistening and hopeful and encouraging are going to be just as impotent to help them. I think Hood County needs the message of Isaiah, that there is a great God, and he sent his son as a great savior, and that savior is the only hope that we have but how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. You know whose job it is to get that word out? It's our job. So we take the prophetic call from Isaiah, we take his message, and we take it, as it were, to a new generation, a new country, a new people, as our hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Isaiah. Thank you for this book. Thank you for all that it has done to help us Um, what a great God you are. We give you all praise and all glory. Might we walk with you in humble, genuine, trusting faith. Thank you for the Savior. Thank you for the hope of restoration. Thank you for your mercy and kindness and grace. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.